Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Okay. Well, I'm Benjamin Boyce. I I produce content on uh, YouTube and podcasts uh, specifically around uh, investigative journalism and deep dive interviews with a range of intellectuals and individuals that I find interesting. In this episode, I'm talking to Benjamin Boyce. We're in lockdown, so we're socially distancing. I'm in Ireland and Benjamin is in the northwest of America, somewhere in Washington state. It's six o'clock in the evening here on a sunny May evening and it's 10 o'clock in the morning there. I don't know what the weather is like. Uh, In this podcast, we're going to be talking about the student protests at Evergreen State College, which is in Washington state. And they took place or hit the main headlines in 2017. We also address the right wing question. We look at ideas about activism, oppression, microaggressions, religious cults, gender, race, privilege politics and more. If you have a listen, see what you think. And if you like it, you can check out more of Benjamin's work on his YouTube channel, Benjamin A. Boyce. I have been binge watching your videos this week. I hope you're not, uh, you're getting a little deleterious in the brain from all that exposure. Oh, they're, they're so great. Um, and so educational. I mean, I, I did watch some of your videos and I listen to your podcast normally on my podcast app. So, um, so from looking at your YouTube channel, you have like 500 videos. You've got 8 million views and 43,000 subscribers. But one thing that really sticks out is the emphasis on Evergreen, Evergreen State College. So what can you tell us about your fascination with Evergreen? Well, what happened at the Evergreen State College was in uh, 2017 on, well, it kind of began in May of 2017, so about three years ago, uh, and we just celebrated the uh, three-year anniversary of a a particular event in this chain of events. But what happened was that the students 
well, a, a portion of the students, a percentage of the students decided to protest matters of racism, uh, systemic racism on campus. And they their protest was live streamed onto the internet and the way in which they behaved during the protest raised a lot of eyebrows and turned a lot of heads and it seemed kind of like a train wreck of a situation because the way in which the protesters were behaving was rather extreme uh, from you know staging what you could think of as struggle sessions which is a reference to the communist revolution in china where students berated their teachers and performed these uh like witch hunty kind of um uh, pillories of their professors uh, by just lambasting them and and de degrading them publicly and, and getting a lot of pleasure out of that. Uh, that was one set of the protest activity. And then there was a library blockade where the students rounded up teachers and took administration hostage and uh, presented this list of demands, which was really, you know, uh, well, you go through the list of demands and you're like, well, why are you protesting? What is really going on here? They targeted one professor in particular, Brett Weinstein, uh, and accused him of being racist and used emails that he had written to other professors and, and the administration as proof of his racism. But if you read those emails, it's really difficult. Any reasonable person is going to find it really difficult to find racist, racism in those things. I, I was a student at the time that this happened. I was on campus while this protests were, were going on, uh, which will eventually get to answer your question. But just one anecdote was that I was working in the library at my job there in the media department, which will also work into the story later on. And one of my classmates who was pro-protester, or one of the protesters who was my classmate, came up to me with a stack of Brett, Brett Weinstein's emails and, and said, you know, I know he's a racist, and I'm looking at these emails, but it's really difficult to find the racism. He's really good at, at hiding his racism. Uh, he's, he's coded, and we're trying to decode it. I'm like, okay, well, maybe, maybe it's not there, you know. But the, such was the state at the time of uh, certain very loud vocal contingent of the college, which the administration empowered by coddling and catering to, uh, took over the campus, took over the mindset of the campus, had basically full control of the campus. And I watched that happen. I was, I was there. I found it really ridiculous. And then a few days after the protest proper, my, one of my professors allowed another struggle session to occur where students of color, which is their term, uh, berated and uh, pilloried white students, which I guess is all of our term, uh, based on their skin color um, and said, you know, your white silence is violence. And when us white students were like, well, what do you want us to say? We were told to shut the fuck up, quote unquote. Uh, sorry to... to introduce that word um to your yeah, uh, viewership free to use that word, yeah. uh yeah. okay yeah sorry um there's a few things i want to to talk about there so first of all you mentioned brett weinstein and i'm a fan of brett and his wife heather hying don't know if i'm pronouncing her name right. i think you are okay so um but i mentioned them in a conversation i had about two years ago one year ago maybe and somebody said they're right wing and then when I said that you were coming on the podcast, somebody who's researching right wing groups in Ireland was recommended to listen to it afterwards. So I want to just clear that issue out of the way of your political leanings or, mm. you know, views. 
Well, and then we get um, back to Evergreen. <laughs> okay, well, what's the what? How do you frame that question then? Am I right wing? And what does that mean to be right wing? What what does that allow your readers to do or your listeners to do right off the bat? Oh, this is a right wing person. So everything that he says is going to be framed in a certain direction, or I can interpret everything he says in a certain direction. And assumably completely discount the story. So if we if we talk about the story and then we talk about the interpretation of the story, then we can get into questions of whether or not I have an appreciation for conservative thought and if I have an appreciation for progressive thought. I do not think of myself as one way or another. I agree with certain aspects of a variety of political uh, ideologies and thoughts, but I try to assemble my own. And furthermore, I attempt in my own product to maintain a certain level of distance from my own opinion in order for me to engage in authentic discourse with people in a different in in various different places on the spectrum. Uh, one thing that I can say that I really disapprove of is leftists disregarding anything that is so-called right wing. I think that's a bullshit low resolution maneuver and it's a tactic used by cowards and people who do not trust even their own intelligence to engage in a thoughtful manner with with a different person absolutely agree <laughs> um so um right so we've got that out of the way so i want to get back to evergreen <laughs> um well, one more note. The Evergreen, what what we're going to discuss about is very uncomfortable for people of a progressive leaning to look at. And they do themselves a disservice by not really carefully considered what happened because the ideas that motivated and sheltered the behavior that we see at the Evergreen protests are very decidedly left-wing ideas. So this is – even if you are a left-wing person – you need to understand that your ideas can be abused. And this is one way in which these ideas were abused and, and used to affect very ignoble, uh, very backwards uh, behaviors. Okay, they're, they're quite strong words to say that they're actually being abused. So what were the kind of key elements of it? I mean, I have so many questions for you. I'd like to also ask about how, mm. what was your trajectory of change throughout mm. the, the, the process? Like, did your ideas stay the same? Hmm. Uh, did my ideas stay the same? Well, my trajectory, my main trajectory of change has been within the uh, skill set of being a communicator and then uh, being able to perform thinking out loud. I've changed a lot since I began producing content about Evergreen. My exposure to an audience has changed uh, the way in which I present and convey thought and interact with things, which I think is a bigger change than what I actually think about things. Because I, 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 I don't know if I actually have stable convictions of political leaning. Um, I, I don't trust communist thought. I, I have a hard time like making sense of it. Um, I, it's easier for me to understand uh, capitalist thought. Um, and it's easier for me to appreciate conservatism on a traditional level. And it's, uh, and yet at the same time, being an artist, being a creative, I'm always playing with new ideas or wanting to engage, uh, to manipulate uh, traditions in order to produce something that possibly could be better. But I have a 
and this is a byproduct of me just aging. I'm kind of entering into my mid-40s now. I, I have more and more appreciation for the tried and true tested ideas that have been handed down to me through my culture. And I'm I'm less uh, propelled from the inside to rebel against ideas that I don't fully understand that have been around for a long time. So um, – that's I, I that's a way of not answering your question but well, can i can i just yeah. ask it like at the beginning i watched the 20 the series of 20 videos yeah. um on evergreen the complete evergreen i think it's it's called yeah. is it the playlist the, yeah. and uh, like you track the beginnings back a few years before that like back to 2015 yeah. so in 2015 compared to june 2017 yeah how did i change you, Sorry, how did you change and your yeah. views of the ideas like you talked about in, in another video? Yeah. Was it like uh, oppression training, anti-oppression training, I think mm -hmm. it was called, something mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. So were you supportive of that kind of training and outlook at the outset and did that change? I was, uh, I'm, I'm always distrustful of new ideas. I'm always skeptical of new ideas. And uh, there's this... Uh, I think it's a Jewish aphorism, uh, but I heard it from uh, Northrop Fry, who's a who was a Canadian um, literary professor. Where the fool is a man with a new idea that turns out to be an old fallacy, right? And a lot of what I heard at Evergreen was it sounds new. They would talk about equity, and it's not equality. And they they tie their ideas to the civil rights movement, but then they would use these new terms like anti-racism, anti-oppression. Well, what do you mean by that? And I've always held uh, skepticism towards activism, uh, specifically, you know, seeing the trajectory of 60s activism kind of devolve into, you know, a bunch of idealism for the boomer generation, turning into a bunch of practicality, which turns into the 80s, which is just, uh, let's just make money. And, you know, like the eventually the trajectory of, of idealism is that it meets with and compromises uh, to a greater or lesser degree with practicality. Uh, so by which I mean that just the framing of their ideas as anti-oppression, I have a problem with. If I set up my entire ideology as against another ideology, I won't be able to move beyond oppression. I will need to find more and more oppression in order to validate my belief system and my activism. And what you see, what you see very definitely with anti-racism, anti-racist thought or anti-oppressive thought is that the big ideas or the big the big changes of the civil rights movement had been affected and led to smaller and smaller injustices, right? The, the bigger injustices were broken down and turned into smaller injustices. And you still need to work on, let's say, uh, alleviating the outcomes of, uh, of racist laws in the past. You still need to uh, promote, uh, not anti-discrimination, but promote understanding between different racial groups, promote understanding between, let's say, straight people and uh, LGBT people, right? You need to promote um, an understanding of otherness and, and a decrease in discrimination. 
But within uh, the college campus climate that I was in, you had this invention of the microaggression, right? So the microaggression is now deceding that systemic oppression of, let's say, Jim Jim Crow laws or laws that would uh, segregate black people and and cause a disparity in the access to resources uh, between whites and blacks. So. You, you have these major discretions being replaced with micro um, aggressions, but the activist tenor and the urgency and the necessity to change, it doesn't change pitch, right? So you have a, a, a decreasing in, in the... Uh, in the aggression or the oppression, but you don't have a decreasing in the pitch of protest. And I, and my question is, can you actually engage with the nuances of microaggressions if you don't care, if you don't tone down your rhetoric and tone down your, your uh, vehemence, your virulence, um, to be proportionate with what you're dealing with, somebody uh, not liking looking at you in the right way, or, or somebody uh, you know saying something that can be construed as offensive, right? So oppression was a was replaced with offense, right? Which is a, which is a lesser form of oppression, but the reaction to oppression maintained the same the same uh, the same tenor, and and so I I just I disagree with that. I, I just don't think that that results in anything other than what happened at Evergreen. The, the students were handed all of this rhetoric, and I, I have footage of one of, the, uh, one of the administrators who's putting a lot of, uh, of revolutionary ideas into, the, uh, into the, the heads of the students. He's showing all these photos from 1957 from uh, you know, uh, black protesters being uh, harassed by white police officers being chased down by dogs. He's showing all these images to the students, and then he's saying, this, this hasn't changed at all. This is the same thing that's happening right now. It's just they've gone passive-aggressive now. Like these, these institutions are still against you in the same way. So you, you need to figure out how they're actually that way. And, and then he promotes like these uh, revolutions in the Caribbean about like people taking over the island, you know, like the queens of the island rose up and overthrow their oppressors. And then 80 days later, the people that he's talking to enact an overthrow of the so-called racist overlords who are bending over backwards. The administration is bending over backwards to, to facilitate and to serve the people that are now accusing it of being racist. Right. And I did notice that actually the word that kept on coming into my head when I saw uh, George Bridges, the president at the time was obsequious. Mm. Like he was just like, so like servile, put your hands down. He's like, oh, I'm sorry, sorry, I have my mm. hands up. And, uh, you know, he, they said jump. He would kind of say like, how high? Yeah. But um, so from the beginning, then you were quite, quite critical. You, you were, you had independent thought in a way that maybe the other students didn't have. You were a mature student, am I right in thinking? Yeah, I was a, uh, my immaturity is of a different caliber than their immaturity, uh, let's say. I, <laughs> I'm, I'm 16 to 18 years older than most of the people that are going to school there. I, I went to school and Evergreen 
uh, still serves older students quite a lot. And its model of education, I argue, is better suited to an older, more independent-minded uh, student than it is to somebody who uh, gets really low grades, doesn't really understand high school, and doesn't really understand that you need to put work into something in order to get something out of it, right? And a lot of the rhetoric that you see the protesters using is that the college is here to serve us. The college needs to fire who we find uncomfortable. The college needs to give us free grades that needs to give, give us free food. It needs to serve us because we are paying it. And therefore, it needs to return our, our investment with what we want, which is good grades, which doesn't make sense because they're not actually the college is cheating the students if it just gives them good grades, because then the student leaves with a diploma that doesn't actually translate into a skill set. Um, and there's there's plenty of evidence that I've explored in the way that the Evergreen Professoriate broke down the connection between meritocracy, between the effort that you put into something and the value that you receive with regards to a credential. You know, the credential only really matters insofar as you earned it on your own. Um, but yeah, I was, I was of a different mindset. I was, you know, 16, a decade and a half older than the students. I was in my college years in the 90s, which was at the heyday of a previous incarnation of political correct culture uh, that was not as intense and, um, I guess, uh, radical as it was during the 2010s, right? The, the, the 20 teens, where you see a lot of the social justice activism kind of come to a head uh, in a lot of different ways. Um, and we'll see what happens nowadays with everything changing um, on the fly. But um, yeah, so I, was, I, was, I wasn't just critical of the ideas. I was just trying to play out the ideas. Like I would go to these privilege workshops and, you know, and they would want you the, the giver of the workshop would want you to assign your privilege and say, okay, what are the privileges that I have? And what are the, uh, the privileges that I don't have, you know, and, and then you, you enter into a, uh, a confession of that. And I would refuse to do that. It's not for me to uh, expose other people to who I envy and who envies me. I'm not going to play that envy game. I'm not giving you the reins to my shame and my guilt. Those are internal uh, compasses in order for me to assess my own behavior. I'm not handing that over to somebody who's giving a workshop on this stuff. So I would, I would play out a longer run. Like, okay, if we all assign privilege to our, each other, what's the end game? What is the end game of doing this? And leading up to the protest, there was more and more protests on campus. And I would say to, to faculty, to the administration, I wrote a letter to George Bridges. I spoke with my, my overseers, my, my, my bosses in the college and saying, you're teaching this privilege stuff and it's resulting in these students acting without any sort of self-responsibility. These ideas are translating into this behavior. The behavior is wrong, therefore maybe either the ideas or the way that the ideas are presented, there's something wrong with them. And there's a complete disconnect. There's a complete disconnect, which is really frustrating to me. And did people listen to you? Did other students listen to you? Did faculty members listen to you? The, uh, okay, so people would agree with me and people would disagree with me, but I was a very small voice. Like I was just one student and plus uh, just watching it, I was kind of, the, the, the climate on the campus caused me to, um, speak out less and less. So I would do, I would do slighter and slighter rebellions. Like when, 
for instance, instead of just arguing against the concept of privilege or arguing against why everybody should confess their pronouns and why I should assign myself a pronoun, instead of arguing that, I would just I would just not do it. I would just not do it because they can't make me do it and they're not going to shame me to do it. I would I would find little ways to to uh, to protest in a way that you can't really you can't really call me out on like, you know, it's like a microaggression in a way against a micro rebellion, uh, let's say against um, that that climate. But the climate was very strong. It was from all quarters and you could feel. Furthermore, um, I kind of I was exposed to a cult, a uh, Christian cult, uh, in, in a religious sense when I was uh, when in my formative years, and we left that when I was five. Um, so I, I wasn't really cognitive, uh, cognizant of the cult, but it had a very strong effect in my parents. And then I was always very wary when we go to an, <clears throat> pardon me, when we go to a new church, I was always very wary of authority and always very, very skeptical of any pastor that we would come across. You know, I'd always be listening to the sermons and, and seeing where they would slip into certain sorts of controlling behaviors. Um, and, and I, and I always being somebody who aspired to be a novelist for many years, I always wanted or knew that my the biggest story that I could investigate would be to show the inner workings of a cult, right? Because I was always attenuated to that and always being wary of that, even though I, I, I agree with a lot of the necessity for cultures to have uh, a church or have a religion and have a religious institution. Uh, there, there's a variety of ways that those institutions can go awry. The thing is, is that secular societies have churches too. They just don't call them churches. And a lot of the social justice progressivism is a rebooted Christianity, but only the bad parts of Christianity. It's not a full story. story. They have all the sin, but zero redemption, right? So they they have uh, original sin in the form of privilege um, and systemic oppression. But how, how do you actually perform that? Like, how do you work that out? There's no way to be forgiven of my whiteness or my masculinity or my genitals, uh, save that I, I bleach my or stain myself and cut off, cut off my genitals. There's no way for me to escape that inherent badness or that connection to that oppressive power structure. The only way to escape that is to submit myself to the anger of a mob. And what you see at the Evergreen State College uh, protests is the uh, the enactment of the brokenness of this theology where you have the white oppressors put on the pillory and just berated and berated and berated and the the president's giving them everything they want is still not enough it's still not enough okay we're going to we're going to call off the police oh yeah but now we're unsafe so what are you going to do about our not safety well i called off the police cuz you didn't want the police but now you're unsafe but now you want the police and it just it doesn't make any sense and and the glee and the, the the unhingedness of that of the of the play of the of the morality play that you see in this footage is the acting out. It's the dramatic reenactment of a broken theology. Right? There's no way out. It's just it's incessant turmoil. So does re- redemption come in some sense from being oppressed? Then, well, uh, in in a sense, you can think of uh, if you can find your oppression. And uh, this might be a little too controversial to say, but you can see uh, you can see transgenderism in certain aspects. You can see white men 
figuring out how to get their oppression box back, right? In order in this system of oppression, um, you can see it happening, not in every case. And I've done a lot of research into the transgender issues and tried to platform a variety of views and show that there are reasonable trans people and, and reasonable people from all sides. But there is a contingent of uh, the progressive oppression politic uh, where you see people trying to figure out where am I oppressed because that gives me power. So there's no redemption, but there is power. There is, there's no redemption, but there is power. And, and what do you actually use the power for? You use the power for, uh, and I talked about this in one of my videos about Robin D'Angelo, who Robin D'Angelo uh, constructed this idea of white fragility. And she came to the Evergreen campus and gave talks about it and gave trainings to the teachers. And the teachers follow her theology by the letter and they, they, they regurgitate her theology. So in a, in a sense, her white fragility book is the little red book of this, of the evergreen revolution. And that's another reference to the communist revolution. Um, but I, I kind of lost my thought, but you see that, that, that if, 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 okay, let's just put, put it this way. If, if white people are, are privileged and black people are oppressed, then either you give all the power how do you how do you equalize that how do you how do you actually equalize that oppression um how do you fill those equity gaps or or uh, cause those equity gaps to be balanced out one way is to build up the the equity of the black people somehow you build up their skill you build up their money build up their productive power or the other way to do it is to bring the white people down right it's much easier to bring the privileged people down than it is to raise up the oppressed. Because when you bring people down, it gives you the sense of equalization, right? It gives you the sense that we're all getting to the same level because I'm now enacting all the historical oppression on you in the moment. But it doesn't actually resolve anything. It, and that's why I argue, and if you listen to the rhetoric about equity, those who champion what they call equity constantly say it's not equality. We're not looking for equality. We're looking for equity, which means they want to equalize society. They want to bring everything to the same level. And, and it's much easier to, to tear down than it is to build up. It actually takes a lot more effort and, and planning and conscious thought to, to build everything up to the same level. But it, take, it, but it takes very, it, it, like we're seeing right now, it takes very little effort and energy and forethought to burn everything to the ground. Or to attempt to. I think what always interests me as well is that the, when, when you're talking about, or not you necessarily, but when there's a conversation about uh, privilege politics and privilege and oppression, that class rarely comes into it or wealth. And, you know, there's so many other things that yeah. don't actually come into it that aren't discussed. I know somebody once said, yeah. well, beauty, beauty doesn't come into it or intelligence doesn't come into it. And, you know, there's all of these other yeah. other factors that aren't really considered. Um, yeah. So th that's really interesting about your own background then in it. I actually thought you went straight into college from school and it was only no, when I was preschool. I was working in preschool for about 15 years and then I went to I college. discovered all of that today. <laughs> so I thought you were in your 20s and then I realized Oh, well, not to give your age away, but <laughs> I didn't even know you were a mature student until this afternoon. Well, like I say, like my, my immaturity is a, is, is a different form than, than, yeah. than the younger people's immaturity. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods 
for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Um, so you were there then during the events of like, I think it really kicked off May 23rd. You were there for all of that. Were you, were you in the uh, college? I was, I was, I don't think I was on campus for the 23rd, but I was on campus for the 24th. So the 23rd and the 24th are the two main days of protest. And what I've done in my complete evergreen story is mapped out as thoroughly as possible the the blow by blow and then mixed in uh, footage from the past and the present in order to give it context. Uh, but I, I was on campus when they took over the library building and they, uh, you know, they blockaded doors and they took over the administration building and they rounded up people and they, they went through and they checked if you're, if you work there or not, you're, you're free to go if you didn't, you know, or you were, you were strongly questioned if you did work th- for the college because they really thought that you needed to be in this room to, to enact uh, equity. So you, you, and, and you did work? For the college as well as as a, as, a, as a student uh, as a student employee, I I worked in the media department, uh, loaning equipment, uh, working in the computer center, working on video editing and video production. Actually, um, I didn't take any classes in that, but that's what I ended up doing when I left Evergreen um, is doing all the video stuff. And plus, that gave me access working in that department allowed me to experience firsthand a lot of the meetings and the rituals and the workshops that the professors were putting on, which is some insane, insane stuff. Um, I was on camera, like, just completely shocked, like, wait, are they turning this into a church? 
because if they are, it's a really bad church. And I don't think that's legal either, you know? So it's like two, two, two levels of like bad quality and possibly illegal practices going on here. Um, but I was there and then, and then I was able to locate those videos and then make them public. Um, by finding them where ah, they were published okay. on, on YouTube and then going through the FOIAs. I have uh, uh, public records requests that that are still three years old that they haven't gone through because I knew all the words and all the people to ask. I have, I have like a 20 gig uh, just PDF document that they're going through and redacting all the students' names, and they've been working on it for three years now. Uh, I'm, I'm just pulling everything. Um, and uh, why, about a year why? ago. Why? I mean, that's, that's a question why? I did have here, but why are you putting so much time and effort and energy into this project? Well, uh, the short answer is, is because it's my nature. Um, I don't, maybe it's not my nature, but that's what I've done. So I, I went to Evergreen because I had written 20 novels and they kept on breaking at the, about three quarters of the way through the novel would collapse in on itself and I'd write another one and it collapse in on itself. And then I'd rewrite and it kept on doing it over and over and over again. And I just wanted to, I wanted to be a writer. And I saw that if I go to college, I can just focus for four years, just focus on literature and, and just really dive completely and full time plus into what I want to do, which is to tell a story. And I have had a story that is impossible to tell burning inside of me for years and years, an incredibly complex story that we don't need to get into, but it's a very significant story. It's like seven novels long. It takes place in, in every level of literature from mythology to folklore, to the modern novel, to the metafiction, to science fiction, horror, all the different genres, all the different time periods. Um, it, it, it like a, it's a super book, right? And, and uh, that's what I poured myself into. So at the, the, my final year of Evergreen, I, I finally got to the place where I could compose the book that I wanted to compose. And I spent a year of my time doing a lot of independent projects on this one novel. And, and I got to the end of the novel and I realized that my life was done. My life as a writer, like I felt it was kind of like this, uh, something switched inside of my heart. Like I just, I was standing in the shower one day and I just felt my ego, my writer ego die. Like, and I, I felt free. I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm done. Like, it doesn't matter if anybody ever reads that I'm done. I've, I've, I've accomplished that. I'm done. What do I do now? And so I was kind of in this, um, leading up to the protest, I was kind of just plugging away with my writing and just really open to what's next for me. And when the protests happened, what I saw was that there was this website called YouTube. And on this website called YouTube, people were taking the footage of what was happening on the protests and making videos with the footage. And people were watching that footage just like crazy thousands and thousands of people were just watching this footage and I was watching people break down that footage and I was seeing that nobody actually knew what was going on. Nobody saw what was happening behind the scenes. I was there for the whole thing and I started speaking about it. I'm like, okay, well, let's start talking about it. And people just started paying attention to me. It's like, oh, look at this weird guy in this basement of this school and he's like breathing funny and he's trying to talk. Like I, I, in my first evergreen video, it really looks like I'm like, I'm in this bomb shelter, you know, just like leaning over the camera. Um, and, and my presentation's really off. And I, I watched yeah. that today. I thought it was great. Oh, you saw that one. June, June 17th. 
Well, is it no, the 11th or the 7th? June, sorry, 17th. June 20, June 11th. 17, 2017. Yeah, June, June of 2017, yeah. yeah. Um, but when it, I, I made that, I'm like, I had an audience. As soon as I made that, I had an audience. I'm like, well, if you have an audience, you have to give the audience something. So I just like, okay, well, what do I do? What do I do? I'm like, well, there's that canoe meeting. Where was that canoe meeting? So I'm like, well, where was that? So I found the canoe meeting and I just started talking about that video and I started talking about this video. And then I started going through all the documents and, and trying to frame and piece the whole story together. So long answer short is that I had been training to tell an impossibly complex story for 15 to 20 years. And then I was given a story to tell instead of the written word, I was given video and audio footage to tell this story. So I just changed my medium, but I did the same thing that I had already been doing. And once I started that, I'm like, well, I have to tell the whole thing. I have to tell the whole thing. This is absolutely essential that I tell the whole thing. And while there is certainly bias in my reporting, there's bias in my, in my framing of that and bias construed as a particular frame of reference and probably a particular interpretation, at least with the complete evergreen story, I've tried to present it in such a way that allows for multiple interpretations, right? In order to serve not only the progressives, uh, not only the conservatives, but also to serve progressives. So if we have a strong, rational, progressive contingent in my country, I think progress will be much easier to achieve than if we have a ravenous uh, leftist group or uh, progressives that don't really understand that some of their ideas are ripe for, let's use that word again, abuse. Like some of these ideas in progressivism are very easy to abuse. And, and what causes them to be that way? What, what allows them to be taken over by narcissistic psychopaths that want to just destroy everything? So is there, there's some kind of moral aim in, in, in the telling of the story as well, is there or not? Well, well, I, okay. This, this gets into my, into my research into what is a story? Like what, what is a narrative? Can you have a narrative that doesn't have a meaning? Can you have a story that doesn't have a moral? Can you even tell a story without moral uh, guidance informing you and, and helping you to organize the material. I, 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 I think the postmodernists say that, that it's open to anything, right? The, the postmodernists, I'm a postmodernist when it comes to literature, where I go as far as possible to make it mean as many things as possible without it becoming meaningless. I, I want it to be open to multiple perspectives. I want the exercise, I want to challenge my reader in such a way that by the end of it, they can see things in more than one direction and from more than one angle, right? And I probably fail in that because I am personally tied to the story. And especially when I talk about the administration, uh, I, I have very strong disagreements and very strong opinions about their incompetence and uh, ineptitude and uh, sliminess and lack of backbone or uh, serpentine backbone uh, with regards to George Bridges. So I do have bias in that respect. One of the things actually when I looked at Evergreen um, is the ratio of admin to faculty is mm. very high compared and to that, where I work, for example. The, the, uh, the, prof uh, the George Bridges came on, he's the current president, he came on in 2015 and since then he has designed a 
college that was originally formulated to give as much power and control to the professoriate. And George Bridges has 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 made it more and more top heavy, more and more administration heavy and 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 done a lot, whether intentionally or not intentionally, to limit the ability for faculty to control the destiny of the college by shutting down communication, by introducing all of these more and more uh, equity officers, uh, more easier for students to complain, and therefore much more difficult for uh, any sort of interesting conversation to happen on the level of the professorate and the student body. Like you can't venture into certain territories because you might get complained. And Evergreen has coddled a uh, an attitude and a culture of seeing a microaggression and everything. They shot themselves in the foot. So another thing that drives me in this is that this is this is either educational malpractice or malfeasance. Like what happened at Evergreen, which is a state institution, which is a college, betrayed the the spirit and the letter of what it means to be an education institute. They they completely betrayed critical thought and inquiry. They betrayed it. But here's the thing, isn't their aim, their aim is noble as it often is in, mm. in, in these situations. Like yeah. I, ju I just see a lot of people who are talking about privilege and oppression. I know that their ideals are probably yeah. good, <laughs> yeah. but it just gets twisted or warped along the way. Well, I, I, I was exploring this yesterday in a live stream because I, w I found a another equity document uh, from the uh, American state of Idaho's uh, city of Boise. The mayor uh, commissioned an equity report. And I went through it line by line, uh, just did a close reading of this equity document. And one thing that I you know kind of was toying with was the idea of the, the flaw of the excluded middle. I also call it the progressive lens, uh, which is a, a metaphor. If you, my, my glasses are progressive lenses, which means that I, I have a, I can see far up here, right? This, this attenuates to far, the far ground. And then this is the close reading. And then there's this middle zone, right? And the middle zone is actually pretty narrow. And then it widens at the, at the bottom for close reading and, and for the far sighting. And what you see with progressivisms and uh, progressivism, the, the problem that I see with progressivism is that they, they can really easily focus on the oppression that's right here and in the past. They really see it really clearly, all the oppression that's going on right now and all the oppression that in the past. And they have this huge vision of what society should be, of this utopic world where everybody loves each other. We don't need police officers. We don't need laws anymore. Every government, the government can control everything in the best of all possible worlds, right? But that middle ground, is where they screw up over and over and over again. And it's like they, they, their ideals cannot bridge or I, I see constantly this inability to go from the oppressive state to the state of justice and purity. Like, where is that middle ground? And, and the, the complexity, this is the problem that I have, is that the problems are so complex that you actually have to break it down into individual determinism. And, 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 and put, put more and more power on the individual. I'm, I'm an individualist and I'm aware that that has some problems and it's not really feasible, but I think that that's a better way of achieving, uh, let's say, a, a thriving society is if everybody has self-determination and self-responsibility than if, the, and then if the, the government has that or the group has that power. That's one of the points that I came across along the way of between your podcasts and videos. It was about identity politics and 
how, how the individual is lost, that then a person is identified or becomes part of the wider group rather than yeah. looking at them specifically. Yeah. Um, in Ireland, we haven't had really major incidents. We've had a few little things, but like, are there things that we should mm. be watching out for that we could be going down the wrong track? I mm. actually saw in, in the place where I work, there is now compulsory um, mm. bias training, compulsory unconscious bias training, and you cannot yeah. be on an interview panel unless you've done this training. So is yeah. that like, whoa? Well, you need to, you got to be careful with this stuff. I'm, I'm still trying to game ways of doing it. Um, you, you need to ask what are what's the actual studies on this implicit bias training? Has it actually helped anything? I've I've seen of studies where implicit bias training, privilege training, actually degrades interpersonal uh, connectivity. And if you instead concentrate on increasing everybody's communication skills and ability to interpret and be generous with one another, that actually has a bigger aggregate uh, positive effect than if you go through and pick apart everybody's oppression and privilege, um, or, or you start to assign implicit bias to everything. Uh, you have to, you have to say, okay, this might be a good idea, but what, what does it actually do? What, where does this actually lead? And, and what, what's the end goal? And that's, that's another thing that I, I probably failed to make uh, the point of when I was at these privilege uh, workshops at Evergreens, like I, I felt this like, okay, you guys want to teach compassion. You want, to, you want to teach love, right? You want to teach these high ideals that actually have been around in Western society for a really long time. They're encoded in this thing called Christianity, and they're encoded in other religions as well. You want to teach the same way, the same things, but you're using all this passive-aggressive, bullshit, statistical, highfalutin language that obscures, like, do you want me to be honest with another person? Do you want me to be charitable to another person? How are you going to teach me to do that by going through these brain-bending, mind-saturating uh, mind indoctrination camps? You're not going to do it. Furthermore, what you see, you're teaching people to, you're nominally teaching people to have, to be charitable, let's say. But then in, in effect, at these privileged workshops, people would shut you up if you're white, if you're a white man. If you quoted a white man, you would say, I, I know that he's white. I know that this author is white, but he really had some good things to say about, uh, about privilege. Or like, I know I'm just a white man, but uh, this is my idea. It's like, okay, well, we're, we're, we're already out the gate going backwards, right? One of the things, actually, um, you mentioned about cults and the parallels and the theology and, and this idea of love was it was mm. like I thought it was like, uh, you know, uh, I grew up with a, in a Catholic background. So at mass, it was like the response to the prayer was amen or there was different responses. But it was like the response was community love, community love, yeah, community yeah. love, community yeah. love. Yeah. And, and also this idea of a logic and reason is is the creation of white people and therefore it should be just <laughs> thrown out um, it, it's quite extraordinary that the footage and the, the ideas yeah and um, well that the logic that goes against the logic that dictates that uh, logic is white is a, actually a white idea <laughs> like white people came up with that idea too you know so it's like okay you guys can go down that path, but like, are you, are you saying that black people can't do math? Is that what you're saying? Because that's probably the most racist thing that you could possibly do. Um, I'm conscious of time and I want to ask um, you if there's things that you would like to, um, to bring up. Um, 
Well, what's suitable to your interest? I, I can tailor myself to your needs. Jeez, I'm interested in it all. <laughs> um, well, tell us about your interest in the gender, like 60 of the videos are on gender, sexuality and transition, mm. our mm -hmm. interviews. So mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about in your interest in, in that area. This actually ties into uh, my solution to the Evergreen problem. What happened at Evergreen was this erasure of the individual on the level of interpersonal respect and self self respect, and the the extremity of shameful behavior of the protesters and of the administration shows to me a lack of accountability, a lack of pride, like real pride. In, in themselves and real respect for themselves as individuals uh, and, and real respect on the level of the administration for authority. The president of the college ceded his authority in these protests and therefore degraded the entire institution. Um, and and all the protesters were acting and behaving on the level of a statistical analysis of historical oppression and not really seeing that the rubber has to meet the road on a person to person basis. It has to go there. So uh, looking at getting the racial conversation in America is a very difficult conversation that I don't know if it's ever going to be resolved. However, transgenderism is a pretty new idea. Right. Or it was very, very rare. And now it's kind of a hot topic and it's having a profound effect with regards to uh, childhood development, to medical, psychological care and to women's rights. It's having a profound effect. And there's a lot of similar rhetoric, activist rhetoric that is claiming to represent trans individuals that is actually just being co-opted by activists who are saying that they represent trans individuals. So if I want to engage with a topic that has to do with rights or has to do with equality or what I would rather think of as competing needs, competing rights between, let's say, who gets to use what bathroom, I need to strip the activists of their authority and their centrality in the conversation because they don't care about anything except for getting their way. They don't care about the truth. They don't care about facts. They don't care about feelings either. They just care about getting their way, right? So what I'm going to do is talk patiently and in an open person to person level with individuals who are affected by this, right? And get to know them as individuals first and allow my audience to get to know these people first and foremost as individuals, then as males with gender dysphoria, or females who detransitioned, or sex researchers with some crazy ideas, or feminists who I even think are kind of crazy too. Some of them, not all of them, you know. Um, and 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 actually embody the evergreen spirit of deeply diving into a topic with incredible inquisitiveness and thorough patience to really get the data, like really act out the positive of the evergreen education and just completely go overboard and do a hundred videos, just talking with people about this one little tiny topic. Right. And, and my, my first and foremost effect is to platform individuals, but my secondary hope is to change the way in which we engage with this issue or these other issues, right? Just make it more sexy to, to, to have a good, honest conversation about things that are kind of weird or, or out there or difficult, you know, instead of having difficult conversations, have easy conversations about difficult things, right? Great idea. But I'm guessing like gender is probably 
Mm. Is it the most contentious issue at the moment? I don't know. I like, it's how, a, like what has been the response like of you? Well, I mean, I I limited my my. You, you get into something, you get into a topic, and you're going to lose a lot of people on that topic. But you can, I. I've 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 gained the ability to ask questions of my subjects that apply to people's interests who aren't really interested in the topic, but like kind of get more of a human connection with with people. Uh, gender is a very small. You're right. It's a very small topic, but it it it's not as big as race, right? It, it, so it's still a hot topic, um, and there's a lot of nuances going on with it. Um, but it, it's it's more of a what I what I think of as a human sized problem. Another problem with activism is that they take on inhumanly big problems, and they 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 fail at interacting uh, with a sense of humility of them not being able to understand the complexity of the issue. I think gender, even though it's really complex issue, maybe even not that important to a lot of people, it's still small enough for us to get uh, our heads around and rich enough. For us to like see a lot of things going on inside. Great. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I could just talk to you for hours, but then I'll have to edit, 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 edit. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, so uh, yeah, I I leave it there. Unless is there anything else that you'd like to say? Um, you you I, that 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 question fries my brain. I don't know what to say. I mean. I, I have to be, I can think of anything, but I need to be relevant to you and your audience. So like you give me a blank check, like I can't even write a million dollars on it. Like I just see infinity. Mm. Uh, so I will ask you, okay, here is a, here's a quick question. I'll ask you one or two quick questions. At the beginning, your channel trailer is great and it's, it's very fast moving and, and amusing. But yeah. you have, I think, do you have a Tibetan singing bowl? Do I have? No. Oh, uh, you don't, you don't. <laughs> there's a joke there. No, it, right. <laughs> there, there was a joke. There was um, I was doing a story about a college in Canada where uh, some trans activists went off the rails and uh, about free speech and trans rights. Um, and there was this one document where the word harmed was used about 90 times in three pages. So I just I counted how many times they used the word harm or harmed. And I just put that ding. And then after that, like, every time the word harm comes on my channel, I usually put that. It's like a Pavlovian kind of thing. So it's kind of just a joke that here's another thing. I think I know the answer. But one of the things through the videos was the students clicking their fingers. Mm -hmm. What's mm -hmm. that about? Um, that's weird. Um, I think this is really weird. I think like so much of what they did, it just doesn't make any sense if you like kind of think about it rationally. But I think originally the snapping stuff was so you don't trigger people with PTSD because the clapping is too triggering for people who came out of a war zone or a domestic violence situation. So you snap. So they're snapping, but they're screaming obscenities at the same time. So it's like, okay, well. Yeah, there's a lot of obscenities in it. Not that I mind obscenities, but it was just like out of the blue, fuck you fascist to the president. Yeah. And he's yeah. like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, what's your plan for the future? My future plan? Um, yeah. Just create more content. I just want to create 
content and uh, keep on doing the YouTube is a really interesting thing. I didn't think it really existed, but being in the middle of it, it's like, okay, if you put enough work in there and you play your cards right, you can actually make a decent living off of it. And it's interesting to try to create a living out of politics when I really never was into politics. Um, but so I, I've been doing a lot of uh, growth and thought about how to interact with political issues in a way that I think are, is honest and expansive and gives people uh, common ground while also appealing to people so that I can afford to spend the 40 to 60 hours a week that I spend doing this. So just more of the same, but hopefully better and, and uh, with more uh, interactivity. Great. Well, I look forward to listening to more. Uh, okay. Thank you so much. That, yeah, uh, thank you, Colette. Fantastic. Hopefully, I gave you uh, something to think about or your readers to chew on, and we'll see how right wing I I come across. Yeah, <laughs> I'll let you know how how right wing <laughs> yeah, you are. Let me know. Yeah, let me know when it's up. I'll share it. Okay, thanks a million. All right, see you, yeah. Benjamin. Bye. Ciao. Bye. That's the end of this episode of Spokes with a huge thanks to Benjamin Boyce. If you'd like to hear more from him, you can check out his YouTube channel, which is Benjamin A. Boyce, or his podcast, which is The Boyce of Reason, which is available on all the usual podcast platforms. Uh, we'll have more Spokes interviews coming soon. Like and subscribe and share the video. <laughs> there is no video. <laughs> Podcast. Spokes is produced by Colette Colfer and Terry Hackett. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.